Welcome back to Inception Dialogues. Uh, last night, I had a fantastic and very exciting conversation with uh, Jeremy Vaney. Jeremy is an author, he's a filmmaker and former podcaster. He used to host the Paratopia show with his partner, uh, Jeff Ritzman. Um, Jeremy is a very special person because he embodies a kind of apparent contradiction. On the one hand, he is a skeptic, he's a very vo verbal critic of the UFO community, of the New Age movement, religions, and so forth. And on the other hand, he is an experiencer himself, somebody who has had a lifetime of high strangeness experiences, including the so-called UFO abduction experience, which we both agree is an unfortunate term, an unfortunate name in the culture. We have covered a number of topics. We've covered, of course, aliens and, and, and high strangeness experiences. We've covered his own uh, insights from a, a so-called Kundalini rising experience. We've covered the topics in his book, Urgency, which is a very interesting book. Um, we discussed the state of our culture, our future, and a number of other very interesting things. It's a long episode, but I think you enjoyed it a lot, as I enjoyed uh, talking to Jeremy. Have fun. Hey, good to see you. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a while already, like uh, two years <laughs> or oh, something wow. like that. Has it been that long? <laughs> yeah, we had a few false starts on Paratopia a couple of times, um, and now we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think what uh, always uh, made me interested in, in, in talking to you is that uh, you're a bit of a, of a contradiction, right? I mean, uh, you're a skeptic. You have a, a very sharp uh, intellect. A very no-nonsense uh, uh, mentality, very rational, very logical. Um, mm -hmm. You're a bit of a, of a nightmare for the UFO community. <laughs> you're very verbal and critical of them, and critical of religions and, and, and the New Age and all that. And I, I resonate with that. I like that. I like this kind of skeptical, critical thinking, which means mm -hmm. that I take you seriously. <laughs> and um, and then if people would not know anything else about you, they would think. You know, Jeremy is just a skeptic, maybe even a, a debunker, right? Go as far as that. Mm -hmm. um, but you've had a lifetime of high strangeness experiences, right? Weird stuff happens to you, and you don't dismiss it. Uh, you don't, you know, shove it under under the rug. You, you take it seriously. You you give it some kind of ontological validity, although you don't think of it what most people would think of these kind of experiences. You you, you have a more sophisticated interpretation of them. So, yes, thank you. <laughs> I was wondering if you would uh, be willing to share some of those experiences with us just to set the stage so people know where you're coming from. Sure. Well, first, I just want to say thanks for having me on. And um, I really believe in your mission statement. So I think this is a good thing. Um, and also, it's funny, you know, as this is the preamble to me, um, Dr. Tyler Coke John, I believe it was, yeah. said he originally thought or, or wondered uh, if Jeff and I weren't, um, Jeff Ritzman, my partner in Peritopia, weren't just doing some sort of social experiment. <laughs> because how can we be skeptical and experiencers at the same time like this? Um, but basically, my, I mean, my experiences are bizarre in a way that that they start off one thing and then they sort of jump the shark and end up being this whole other, seemingly other realm of nonsense. Um, 
But initially, it was sort of, I guess you would say, purely ufological. I saw a UFO when I was in eighth grade with my mom and sister um, driving to Vermont from Massachusetts here in the States. And it was not just a light in the sky. It was really a spectacular um, toy. I mean, it looked like a giant toy. It, looked, it was self-luminescent green, you know, round. Uh, oval-shaped, maybe, porthole windows running down the center, red and blue blinking lights, top half spinning this way, bottom half spinning the other way, and just tilted on its axis, you know, between a couple of mountain peaks, doing that. <laughs> you know, and you see this in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, you know, stereotypical, right? Um, and your mother and, she, and your sister saw it, too. Um, my mother actually is the first one who saw it. Uh, my sister didn't see it, and, you know, the only two reasons I can think of is... She wasn't supposed to. It would be, I guess, sort of the ufological one. But really, I think where it was angled in the sky, she was sitting in the passenger seat. My mother was driving, and I was behind my mother. And I think it was high enough at an at an arc um, where, because I remember her sort of looking over my mom and trying to see it and saying, "I don't see it." So it might have been sort of, you know, out of range of for her, and she was more interested in what she was reading. So she was like, "Well, I don't see what you're looking at," and just went back to reading. So maybe that was the reason. I don't know, but. Uh, that was sort of the initial anchor experience where it's like, well, if nothing else is true, I know that's true. So if everything else turns out to be a delusion because I saw this, it's because I saw this. Right. Um, and then the other stuff is, you know, sort of abduction, you know, what people probably best know as alien abduction, although I, I think those terms uh, that we use are um, outdated. <laughs> um, so what is it? What is the so-called alien abduction experience between quotes. I agree with you, it's, it, the name is very unfortunate, but what is it? If you, because most people read about it, but here's an <laughs> opportunity to talk to somebody who has a sharp intellect, has had the experience. Um, I, I'd love to take that opportunity and ask you what sure. it's about. Huh, what is it about? Uh, you got me. <laughs> um, I, it's easier to say what it's not about um, because it's not about what is has been promoted. Little doctors, you know, doing evil things, hybrid experiments, and all that stuff. Um, I think it's you know you sort of have to strip away that stuff before you can get to what it's about, uh, and that stuff is all a construct of hypnosis from researchers. The most famous, I think, is Bud Hopkins is probably the most famous hypnotist, and he had um, I don't know how public this knowledge is, but he had a fear of doctors for very good reason. Um, you know, when he was a kid, he was emasculated by them. He was humiliated by them. He was stuck in a water tank. I, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff because he had, what did he have? I can't remember what it is, but he had, you know, some sort of disorder for which doctors back then didn't know what to do. And so they did all of these things that are then reflected in his abduction testimony, not coincidentally. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Uh, so you see something like that and then you see a John Mack who is on the other end of the spectrum who's really open to this stuff, you know, the Harvard professor, you know, but he's really open to transcultural explanations and he's open to this not being little evil doctors and sure enough, the testimony he pulls out of people reflects that disposition. Um, so you look at that and if you're a realist, you go, okay, maybe there's something up with hypnosis. And then sure enough, it turns out hypnosis 
uh, is not a good memory retrieval tool. It's a good uh, behavior modification tool. Um, but I think people just haven't known what any of the recent research is. It's like we stopped investigating what hypnosis is after a while and just assumed we had the answer, and it turns out, no, so uh, there have been, yeah. Your recollection is not based on hypnosis. You have not been hypnotized. You, you recollect it naturally. I have been. I was hypnotized once um, when I was in college, but I don't even remember what I said under hypnosis. I just remember that when I came out of it, the woman offered me free therapy. So, <laughs> but I don't remember what I said. I never, you know, it, it never occurred to me. I was on, the, like, the first radio show I did, I think. Someone asked, well, did you ever ask her if she recorded it or what, you know, how is it that you don't know, you know? And it never dawned on me, even after writing a book about it. It, like, didn't dawn on me. So I really do think there was, like, a post-hypnotic suggestion of don't remember any of this. But, um, but anyway. Remember? Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, your, what was your, I, I think I went off on a tangent because you were asking what is this phenomena. And I think all of this sort of arcs around to, we want to discover what the phenomena is before we want to ask what we are. And I think that is integral to understanding the phenomena, is getting what a human being is first. Because I don't think we're ready to ask the question, what is this experience about? And I think this question is trying to lead us into ourselves being able to ask that. I'm totally with you on that. But before we get into the deep stuff, um, just so people have a context, what does it feel like? What is the experience from the perspective of the experiencer? In other words, not the interpretation of it, not uh, not the narrative about what it's all about, but uh, how does it feel? What is perceived? I think it depends on the experience. You know, a UFO sighting um, is your it's sort of in normal consciousness, presumably, and it there's wonderment. You know, what the hell, what am I looking at? Actually, there's denial in both instances, whether you're face-to-face -face with these beings or seeing a ship or whatever. Um, there's denial, the den denial of what you're seeing. Even for me, even as a guy who writes for UFO Magazine, writes books and all this, it's like when it's happening, it just, it's, it doesn't make sense or you don't want it to be happening. Um, so there's denial and there's wonderment. Um, but with the actual sort of face-to-face -face encounter, there's just deep terror and, um, October 2001, you know, uh, I, I saw these little guys standing by the bedside. Um, I'll, I'll give you the setup for this, which is that I'm lying next to my girlfriend at the time um, on a mattress on a floor in Queens. Don't ask me why. <laughs> Poverty, I don't know. Uh, and it, it's the middle of the night and bright light is streaming in through the window, which doesn't make sense. Um, so I climb over her, I peek out the window, and, you know, there's nothing there. I just see this sort of diffuse white light. And I look down at her, she's not moving, so everything's fine. So I roll over, and to my right, standing above me, are these, you know, pretty much everything you've ever seen on TV. They're small people, um, giant eyes, diminutive features otherwise, wearing tunics, wearing brown tunics, gray-skinned to the blue hue, not to the white, um, and they're just standing there, and if I had to guess at what they were emoting at me, it was like a childlike naivete, like, come with us. Uh, that's how it felt, and yet my response to it was deep terror, which tells me that my response to this phenomena isn't what the phenomena is projecting. So there's a... Mm. There's a disconnect there, and I've had other experiences, um, arguably, <laughs> where 
or maybe they're just dreams and hallucinations, um, which sort of told me that, that there is this barrier between worlds that is fear. Uh, that there, there is something at the point of connection between that world and this when they come internally, <laughs> uh, when it's not a completely physical, you know, external thing, that there is this necessary barrier of fear and that you have to get over that hump to fully appreciate the experience. Um, and doesn't that smack of the hero's journey, you know? Going yeah, through yeah. the cave and all of that. Um, the shamanic, uh, uh, the hero's journey and shamanic journeys, maybe. Mm -hmm. D does it feel to you as real as you sitting by your computer right now, or does it have that sense of an altered state of consciousness? No, it felt as real as anything else. I mean, um, in fact, to the point where now uh, the analogy I give, I guess, is if you go and watch Jurassic Park and you see these giant, you know, CGI dinosaurs. Because you've never seen a dinosaur, they look realistic. But if you ever see something like Jumanji or something where it's a human or an animal that you are familiar with, your eye picks up the detail and you go, oh, that's, that's a CGI thing. And this is the same thing now. Having seen them up close like that, I can look at anything on YouTube and go, no, that, that's crap. Um, that, that is not what they look like. Um, so it is, I mean, not just real in the normal sense, but it has actually done that for me, which is strange. If your girlfriend were awake, which she was not, but if she were, do you think she would have witnessed the same thing? I don't. I, I actually contacted her uh, many years later and um, asked her if she remembered anything that night, and she had no idea what I was talking about. Um, so I would say that she was not conscious, not of her own volition. I, no, I don't think there was. If you were a fly on the wall, would there be people in the room? Yeah, I think there would. Um, they would have I seen the same thing. Yeah, do I think she had the capability to wake up and watch it? No. So it was not a purely internal thing? thing. It's not a purely internal thing. And um, a few years later, again, like when I, uh, the rest of this experience is me, the next thing I know, there's no transition. It's just I'm, I'm terrorized in bed. And the next thing I know, I'm standing in this nondescript room, that same diffuse light source, you know, in the room. And uh, vertical to me um, are a row of tables with naked people on them. Uh, the one closest to me is um, like a, an older blonde female, female, maybe in her 50s, and the beings are standing around here going, yep, this is what we do, you know, just, they're not saying anything, but it's just, they're gesturing with their hands like this, like, you know, show and tell. Uh, and I'm just standing there, and now I'm completely composed, I'm not terrorized anymore, I'm standing in my underwear just as I went to bed. And I'm thinking to myself, why am I seeing this? Like, why am I here? <laughs> And this female voice answers in my head, because you've always wanted to remember what an abduction was, you know. And then I had this long conversation with this woman. Um, the end. I don't know, you know. So, you know, I guess the skeptic would say, well, this was a dream or something, but it was not a dream. So I got up the next day and I remembered the conversation and I was, but in denial, you know, I wanted this to be a dream. It was like this... There's no way you're in Queens, New York, and lights coming in through your window, and the whole neighborhood isn't waking up. There's no way that this is happening. So I ignored it, and I let it go, and now I don't remember what that conversation was. But a couple of years later, we had this um, subletting roommate, uh, and I was talking to him in the kitchen and getting to know him, and my left nostril started to bleed, and that triggered a flashback to that night, not the night I just spoke about, but the actual previous night to speaking mm -hmm. with this roommate. Uh, where now I'm in a different room because I'd switched bedrooms and I'm in a bed and uh, I've upgraded <laughs> my poverty status. Uh, and I'm woken up by light again out 
I, I think outside the window, except that the, the window is, you know, there. I could see it to my left, and I'm looking out across the room. There's nothing there. No light coming in. It's dark. So what? where is this light? And I look over to my right, and where my wall should be is, for lack of a better term, a force field or something. It is that diffuse white light. And my nose starts bleeding down my throat. And so I think that the nosebleed bleeding out triggered, you know, sort of synced up with that. Point of that is, so seeing that same quality of light where my wall should be, I then had no choice but to realize, okay, that first thing a couple of years ago was real. Get out of your denial. And it's not a ship above you beaming a light down that the whole world sees. It's some sort of directional thing. If I want to say portal, okay, great. <laughs> From a first-person perspective, you've had the experience, so let's forget the skeptics for a moment and whatever theories they come up with. From your perspective, as the person experiencing it, do you have any doubt whatsoever that it could have been a dream, that it could have been a hallucination, a delusion? Is it qualitatively different from these other states, these other states of mind, states of consciousness? Yeah. Um, is it qualitatively different? See, we always talk about it on Paratopia as being qualitatively different. Um, but when you're actually in it, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, it does feel like there's someone in the room with you. It does feel... Like, I guess I was open to it being delusion um, or something as a product of seeing that UFO um, when I was younger because... You know, in high school, something walked into my bedroom. You know, I heard the door open. I see this shadowy figure. It's babbling at me. All this. But I never made out detail of a face or anything, you know. And I, so for a while, up until that incident in October 2001, I, I could very easily go with you on that. Um, but now, having seen them right there, I can't do that, you know. It, it, this is a real thing. But it's different from a dream. This, oh, yeah. No, That's what I meant. It's real. It's definitely different than a dream. I've since, like a couple of years ago, finally did a hallucinogen. I did mushrooms. And there is some creepy, similar quality, um, maybe just the inherent fear aspect of it. But now even that is different. Even that is cartoonish. Um, and this was real, as far as real goes. Is it still happening, Jeremy? Um... See, this is where it becomes a blended gray. Uh, is it still happening? Something is still happening. I mean, you know, we call ourselves experiencers of high strangeness. Um, because I have highly strange experiences, are they this same thing? I don't know. I haven't seen a little being since then, so maybe not. Oh, but here's something. Um, I, I did have this uh, hallucination or whatever of snakes on the floor once. Um, you wrote in your book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that was cartoonish. Like, if you're talking about hallucination, that was cartoonish. Um, it was, like, hyper-real, so that wasn't real. So, you know, there's something about that that you know isn't real, even as it's happening. And I did have a waking hallucination many, many years ago of my mom coming into my bedroom and, and tucking me in and saying, you know, she's going off to work. And even as that was unfolding, I knew it wasn't real. The voice in the back of your head tells you you know, this isn't real, you know this isn't real, whereas with the abduction, the voice in the back of your head goes, you know what this is, this is real, wake up. You know, wake, not physically wake up, but just wake up, dude. 
<laughs> you know, deal with this. Get out of denial. Um, so even your own inner voice is different. Yet you don't buy into the idea that uh, flesh and blood aliens are coming in metal ships from another solar system to physically kidnap people, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm more open to it than my partner, Jeff. I mean, I, I guess my disposition is I don't... It doesn't matter to me where they come from. I think at some point consciousness re reaches a peak, um, and maybe our science reaches a peak. And where are you when you can open a portal? You know, you could be from here and go to another planet through a wormhole. You know, let's say all that Star Trek stuff is real. Well, where are you from at that point? Are you from a planet? Are you, you know, right now our species is at a state where we don't, well, okay, we do, but we're coming out of it, hopefully, at least some of us, coming out of this clan mentality, you know. We're not just our tribe. We are Earth. We are Earthlings. Um, that's a new perspective. So if you broaden that and you go into the universe, are you from the universe? If you broaden that and go into other dimensions, where are you from? Um, so where they're actually putting their feet on the soil isn't so important to me. What our interpretation of what that means, I think, is completely, you know, crazy. <laughs> okay. Well, I think it's actually completely, it's completely us. It's, again, it's self-centered. It's like, what would we do? Well, that's what they're doing, you know. Um, the interpretation in terms of genetic experiments and what, what an not. alien means, yeah. What it means, like, if you say an alien in a, you know, could you ping a rock off the ship if it were here? Well, I don't know that you could, but I don't know that that doesn't mean they're not from another planet. Um, I just think that that means we can't, uh, we can't, try to humanize them in the same exact way that that we are, you know? It just doesn't work. You're very critical of the UFO community. All the, the theories and, and, and the ideas, the disclosure movement. How do you reconcile that with your own experiences? Well, well maybe first, uh, before anything else, you're very open-minded. So where does that sharp criticism come from? Um, it comes from you know, being an experiencer, I think being an actual experiencer of this and then seeing how it's treated, because it is a serious subject. I mean, I laugh and I make jokes on that, but um, it is a serious thing. It's like the most dire thing in my life, you know? And so when I see it being mistreated and uh, for profit or for someone to be able to stand on a stage and say, look, I'm a somebody, uh, because they can't you know, <laughs> they can't get a job somewhere or something. You know, it's like, um, it's insulting, it's hurtful. I mean, I guess if you if if you thought about anything, like like a rape, would you treat, treat a rape victim that way? Would you put out fake rape victims? Would you start fake lectures about rape? You know, about the wonders of rape and how we're going to do something about this rape? I mean, no, it, it's just, it's silly. Um, and so really what you're asking is why don't you give in to the circus of charlatans and snake oil salesmen like everybody else? And I just can't do it. I mean, it just doesn't work. And it's funny you're mentioning the disclosure thing because, you know, just this week, I think today it starts, this fake citizens hearing on disclosure in Washington where somebody has paid tens of thousands of dollars to create a fake set in the National Press Club that looks like the Senate and paid these ex-senators who are, you know, or Congress people who are down in their luck uh, to come and listen to testimony. And they've got this list of speakers. Now, who's giving testimony? It's people who aren't experiencers. It's people who haven't seen a UFO. It's people who have just believe anything. 
Like, how do you, what are they a witness to? <laughs> you know, like, how does this not upset people? And then when you voice, you know, that fact about it, um, what's really upsetting is the number of people who will come back at you and say, well, you're not, you know, what are you doing? You know, we, we got to get behind this. It's like, no, you don't just get behind someone because they spout the same thing that you want to hear. That's televangelism, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to quote, um, a segment from your book. Here's uh, Jeremy's book, Urgency. It's been out for a couple of years now, right? Uh, yeah, 2011. Yeah. And um, there is a part where you you say something that bears relevance to how you interpret these entities from an ontological perspective, where you you, know, you question what they are. Um, let me see where. Where it is. Now, here it is. I'll just quote a part and then I'll ask you to comment on that. You say, you say, when truth touches a brain that is blocking it out, the interaction forms archetypal humanoid characters. The marriage between you and truth as a separate thing you intuit is the circumstance in which thought form offspring are conceived. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> Archetypal humanoid characters are the next phase in the evolution of mind. When archetypal symbols are engaged over and over and their meanings refined, they become their own living, albeit non-physical, entities with their own internal logic. They tell their own stories to us over and over again. We helped conceive these stories. We helped conceive these stories. So the ring of relative and objective truth keeps us coming back for more. Truth is not a structure. It contains and surpasses all structure. However, when truth is treated like an outsider, it must take form. Since the brain will not allow truth to become its own self-awareness, first person, truth must fashion structures with the aid of the brain through which it may speak to us. Therefore, Archetypes are the middleman between truth and the human. So, are the alien archetypes? Ooh, good question. Um, no, I don't think they are. I think they. I. Th I think at some point they start using that language. You know, I think. Uh, huh. How do you put this? I think when you're outside of human consciousness, or you transcend and include human consciousness, um, anything that you say is going to be um, broken up by us in our brain through our psychological filters, through our cultural background, through our own personal junk. Um, and so I think that when they speak, <laughs> I, this is just supposition. I don't really know this, but I think that when they speak, um, you know, we we just want language. We just want hi bye. Um, but that's our fault. That's again where we need to know ourselves and we need to be on that level. And if we're not on that level, then one movement by them gets broken up into several different movements as we receive mm -hmm. it. And so there's the language component. There's the silly strangeness component that we can't quite interpret. There's you know, signs that we see, um, you know, so on and so forth. There's a dreamy component. There's all these different components. Um, and I think that's us doing it, but I don't, 
And I think that's similar to the archetypal thing, but I don't think that's the same thing. Would it, would it be correct to say that, in, in your view, that uh, there is a core of objectivity to the experience, but we dress it up with something that we make up ourselves? We give it some kind of form that comes yeah. from ourselves? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, how do you how do you perceive the unknowable? And so far, you know, um, this whatever this phenomena is hasn't said it's an un well. It as far as we know, it's it's unknowable. You know what I mean? Like we consider it an unknown. And when you have an unknown, you go, okay, we're going to find out what that unknown is, uh, or we're going to project onto it an answer that we already have. You know, little aliens that look like us and blah blah. Um, but this yeah. thing seems to. Every time we do that, it sort of changes up. It does something new. Um, it wants. I don't. I think it speaks the language of question, not the language of answer. If that makes sense. So every time you try um, to box it into some kind of narrative, it shows another aspect of itself that denies what you just tried to do, right? That's yeah, I mean, Whitley Strieber would say that this is maybe, perhaps, this is what the face of evolution looks like. You know, uh, and, and I, I think never that understood what that meant. I think it means this. I think it means that every time you box it in with an answer, it, it gives you another question because what's important is to remain open to in the state of questioning. In the state of questioning means that you don't have the mental clutter of answers, you know, blocking out the rest of the universe, blocking out truth, God self, whatever, however you want to put that. And I think, you know, I think that this is the, the height at which this communication comes you know, from that sort of perspective. And I, I, the reason I wince about saying all this is because as soon as you say God self, again, there's another charged thing. And it's like, well, probably doesn't mean what you think it means. And so I probably shouldn't use the term. <laughs> but I mean, all of this is to say that, yeah, I, I, I don't think, I think archetypes are the thing that we, you know, when you say created, it sounds like there's time involved. And I don't know how much time there really, I mean, it could all be instantaneous um, of just, the second the ego blocks out truth, well, you're blocking out what you are. And so what you are then becomes something that needs to speak to you because it's not speaking as you. You're not it projecting It needs to become the second person, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it becomes this messenger or it becomes a Christ or whatever it is. But, I mean, don't you find it fascinating that people who take ayahuasca trips um, or any of these sort of shamanic journeys, it's like they meet these beings that they uh, yeah. assume are other beings in real in this other dimension, perhaps gods and goddesses, and what is it that they want to talk about? Your own personal psychology, your own baggage, you know, what's wrong with you? Uh, and my friend Jeff Ritzman, you know, has this tall being, this, you know, shrouded man who comes and sits down and has this chat with him about life, the universe, and everything, but really what's important is, how are you doing, Jeff? <laughs> you know, this psychological thing. So there's definitely something about whether it is a real being or not, um, you getting right with yourself, for lack of a better term. I, I think but, that has to happen before a real communication can occur. You know, even before the or the, the, the renaissance of shamanism and, uh, and, and psychoactive drugs and, and the alien abduction phenomenon and all that, Carl Jung had this archetypal figure he called Philemon, which was an old man, very wise, who would go stroll, uh, stroll in the garden with him, go for walks with him, and, and talk about life, the universe, and everything. And um, that was an archetype, according to his psychology. I, I think, see if you agree with me, I think the, 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 the essence that you're trying to figure out here to differentiate archetypes from entities is whether there is something, anything, 
it is like to be the entity. Because if, if it is just something that you are projecting out of yourself, so you can reconcile two different parts of yourself, then it's a kind of a theater. There is only an external aspect. There isn't a conscious point of view in that entity. There is nothing it is like to be that entity. Mm -hmm. But if there is something it is like to be that entity, if there is if that entity has a conscious point of view of its own, if it is experiencing you, then we might ask, is this really an archetype or is it a conscious entity like you and me? Well, I don't think you and me are conscious entities like you and me. Because again, i got to get back to, to that central issue of, um, you know, it, is there another uh, level of being that we have the ability to be open to? Um, and if there is, then why would we think that they're operating on the level that we're on now? So if they're not operating on the level that we are on now, uh, if we need to be something else, if that makes sense, if we need to come out of our cocoon and become the butterfly, then then we have the right to ask what are all of these butterflies about? You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and are they real? Um, because I think, that, I, I think that the confusion comes that there's, there is something in us, which is us, <laughs> saying you need to come out of the cocoon and be the butterfly and that's the archetype because we've we've said we don't want to chew our way through we want to set up HD TVs and we want to stay here we want to do this for as long as possible but our you know this other nature of us begs us to come out um, and that is going to look an awful lot like the ones who have already come out of their cocoons wherever they are because I think that even though on the one hand you know, as I said, you can't sort of anthropomorphize something from somewhere else to be like us. What I really mean, I think, is that you can't anthropomorphize them to be what our our self-centered ego nonsense is. But I think in consciousness, there eventually comes that point of oneness or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a truth, and that truth is, uh, you know, is an objective thing that you, um, I don't want to say can reach, but become. And it's going to be the same here as anywhere else in the universe, because at some point there just becomes that plateau. Um, so I think that other creatures of that plateau, um, as I'm saying, are going <laughs> to reach to us and go, come on out. And it's going to look yeah. a lot like ourselves saying, come on out. They're going to look very similar. They're going to use the same language. I am with you on this. Uh, you're alluding to the idea of this one consciousness and that the ego is an illusion, that our sense of me, little me, as an individual entity that's ultimately an illusion, that we are just awareness, and the awareness is the substrate of everything. I am with you on that, but bear with me. Even acknowledging that, I also acknowledge that even though you and I are the same awareness, ultimately we are just split off psychic complexes of this one mind, if you will. I do acknowledge that there is something it is like to be Jeremy. I do acknowledge that Jeremy has a conscious point of view. But something, a figure that I might dream tonight after I speak to you, maybe that figure in my dream does not have a conscious point of view of its own. It's entirely a projection of my mind. It only has the external factor. It doesn't have inner life. There is nothing it is like to be a figure of my dreams. And if I understood what you just said, what you're saying is that the entities in the high strangeness experiences they have a point of view of their own. There is something it is like to be them, you think? Yeah, I think that's true. But I think, like your analogy, I think everything is the same set of systems within systems. And from the ultimate point of view of spirit or whatever, the oneness that we are, 
then aren't we the dream? Uh, and then aren't these alien entities also the dream characters that reflect spirit, that are spirit? Dreaming, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so from that perspective, we're all in, in that same boat together, and then isn't it interesting that we can set that up with our own minds where we have these dreams that are actually us, you know, reflecting ourselves? Um, so from that ultimate point of view, we and the aliens may be uh, the dream. <laughs> or characters but, in the big dream. <laughs> Yeah, but if we pull back, then yeah, you would say that that the the characters in those dreams um, believe themselves to be real and have, you know, an autonomous nature. And there is an experience of being me. There is an experience of being you. Sure. There is a part. I'll go back to your book because you talk about this dream aspect uh, in a very interesting way. Uh, I'll quote you again, if you if you don't mind, if you don't get bored of listening to your no, words. I never I never get bored <laughs> listening to me. Please, where's my pipe and smoking? <laughs> Here we go. You say that's page eighty three of urgency. You say we are not only grappling with the outside world, but the inside world, the interior domains we've co-created with universals. Beliefs aren't solely about covering our own ignorance of material processes with the lies that feel good or give us meaning, although that is part of it. Beliefs are also developed around these interior domains we don't understand, and it is here that science isn't helping. Materialists would reduce these domains to biochemistry if they could. Interior domains exist for the same reason exterior domains do, because the whole of formless intelligence must exist as a reflection of itself, and that means breaking the whole into parts within parts within parts. You just alluded to that. Once an interior domain has taken on a life of its own, we approach it through shared perspective. And of course, that immediately raises the question, isn't consensus reality, ordinary reality then, from this perspective, an interior domain that has taken on a life of its own, in which we now approach through a shared collective perspective. Sure. <laughs> Is that what you think? Is that what your insights have led you to? Um, I just think... It's, it's a weird thing. It's like... Um, I don't know if reading that sounds judgmental or not, but it, I just think that there's... Uh, it's just what is. It's just what's going to happen. Yeah, you, you wake up out of the animal state into whatever we are. Um, the immediate reaction to that is fear, and therefore this ego projection from the brain, this sense of self, comes out. Uh, and then we form this consensus reality by trying to win others over to our point of view, asking each other, hey, what's going on out there? You know, all yeah, of that. And then, and then all of that becomes our internal reality, too. What, what we experience out here, and even what our brain chemistry itself is doing, um, becomes the experience of the internal. So you're suggesting that consensus reality maybe is a thin scaffolding of some synchronization mechanisms and all the flesh on the bone is actually what we agree uh, with each other through language is going on, right? We made it up. We, we make it up. Um, yeah, we make, we make it up. Well, we certainly make up the interior. Um, the exterior we make up somewhat, but I mean, some of it, is, of course, is just actual perception of things and the limitations of our senses. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, I think we make it up. I, I think we um, also make it up by blocking out a lot of what's around us. I think 
you know, there's that scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure where uh, Pee-wee Herman is alone in the dark and he turns on the flashlight and suddenly he sees all these, you know, exotic animals out to get him. I think we've sort of, in our fear, done that. And I think this is where, you know, a theorist like George Hansen comes in and says, you know, there's, this is called the trickster, you know. Um, George which, Hansen, you know, the, the George Hansen. The trickster in the paranormal, right? Yeah, trickster in the paranormal. And, you know, he talks about anti-structure as sort of being the uh, the gateway into a paranormal experience. And so what is it that is being, what is the structure that is is uh, being antied, <laughs> if I may make up a word, um, well, it's it's your own sense of normalcy. So if you ever, so people who move, for instance, are more likely to uh, have an apparition experience, or if you're going through a divorce, or you're depressed, or whatever is like out of your normal range of experience. Uh, personally, you're more heightened and more open to having more of the ecology that is actually around you come into your your awareness. Um, so what does that tell you? I mean, we're, that means that we have this mental construct of blocking out a larger ecology. And I think that even that becomes part of the, the problem in asking the question about archetypes and aliens and this and that. I think there's a lot going on here that is all interrelated in the sense that it's it's us blocking it out. Um, we block out truth, we block out this phenomenon, we block out the spirits all around us or whatever that is. I, I shouldn't even say that because who knows what that is. Um, but it's funny, you know, talking to Teokas and Ghost Horse, who's, um, you know, a Lakota speaker, um, he, he had said to me something about, isn't it f funny how, you know, we, th we think of ghosts as being trapped in houses, but before, you know, Whitey came here with his square box living, uh, spirits were roaming the land, so that's not the issue. It's not that there are ghosts in a house, you know, Indians don't see it this way. Um, so, there's a sense of perspective here that I think is missing. Sure. I think what I get from what you're saying, and I, I appreciate that a lot in your book as well, and if, if I would summarize my own perspective of what you're trying to say that I find very interesting is that uh, to grant ontological validity to something, you do not need to take it at face value. Um, and the other way around, uh, th these two things are not equivalent. Uh, if you do not take it at face value, it doesn't mean that you're saying it's unreal, it's a delusion, it's, it's ultimately not true. You can say, I don't take it at face value, and you can still grant the experience uh, ontological validity. You can still say it is real, but it's real in a way that is not literal. It's real in a way that is not what it seems to be at first glance. Yeah, it's, it's I don't like think there is any any face value to any of this. I think the face value is a facade, for sure. And I think that that's why that gets back to the original thing of, you know, why are you upset with the disclosure movement and all of that? Because they're interested in the facade. They're interested, and not only interested, but they are certain that the government is covering up this facade. And if we could just get them to open up about that, then we'll have a Star Trek reality of intergalactic light or whatever happens. Uh, and it's like, no, 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 if you've actually experienced this phenomena and are true to yourself, um, that ain't in the cards. That's not what this is about. Um, and that's why I think, um, you know, it's, it's difficult because a lot of experiencers did get hypnosis and then I think did get brainwashed into believing, you know, some of those hypnotized scenarios. And so, you know... Where do you go? But yeah, no, I, I don't think um, I don't think there is a face value. I think face value is a, a play. 
you see it more as a metaphor of something deeper. Yeah. Um, in your book, in Urgency, you have the modest goal of answering every significant question ever asked by any human being <laughs> on the planet hey, face of the earth. Hey, if you can, right? I've got the time. <laughs> um, it is, it's a fascinating book. Um, what gave you the inspiration or the insight uh, to those answers, to, to, to everything you wrote in that book? Um, were high strangeness experiences as well, right? But not alien abduction experiences between quotes. They were more like what maybe people in the East would call an enlightenment experience. Can, can you talk a bit about what what have happened to you? <laughs> what has happened yeah, to well you? Yeah, well, again, that's where I jumped the shark. It's like, oh, aliens aren't enough, you know? How special can you be? Um, yeah, no, I mean, essentially, I was... Uh, I had a roommate who, you know, I'd have deep discussions with or whatever, and she... Um, said, well, you would really like Ken Wilber. Um, you should look into him. So I looked into Ken Wilber, who's an integral philosopher, uh, and he says a bunch of words that I don't understand, and I go, wow, that makes me feel smart. Um, why is he so smart? And I had read where he said he cut his teeth on Jiddu Krishnamurti. Um, so I'm happening down the street one fine day in New York, and um, there's a bookseller selling all of these Krishnamurti books. And I went, oh, that's the guy. So I started reading those because I wanted to know, how is this guy so smart? And Krishnamurti, you know, says truth is a pathless land and, you know, really, that's, he says that eight million times in different ways. Um, and, but a lot of what he says was hard for me to take and it angered me because I, I, it's antithetical to how you perceive the world. Um, and so I was thinking, wow, this guy isn't making sense, but he's obviously affecting something in me to where I keep reading and he's obviously affected Ken Wilber, who I think is the Einstein of this generation. And so I've got to be missing something. And so I kept reading until I finally got it. Um, and then the moment that I finally got it, which is, and basically what I got is that if you want to know what truth is, or if you want to know if there is such a thing as truth, you have to stop seeking it because truth is a pathless land. And so that means that you can't even have the motivation of seeking in mind. Uh, you have to be a clear vessel, and truth may or may not blossom in you. You can't have that answer because that answer becomes the illusion that you know you be you find what you seek, and what you find is going to be another illusion. Um, so when I finally really, really, really got this, um, I just stopped. I put the book down, and I just sat, and I was I was silence for but a brief moment. Uh, and in that moment, um, I just uh, this energy. <laughs> started welled up in my spine, uh, which actually threw a disc out. I slipped a disc. So there was that physical repercussion, which I don't recommend, which may be why people do yoga and shit before they do this, so that they can be in shape for the big thing that they never get to because they've done yoga. You know, it's, it's the paradox and the irony. Anyway. You get stuck in yoga. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They get stuck believing they're already there. Um, so then my head starts spinning like this, like an exercise, and I'm not spinning it. And I'm thinking, this is interesting. Uh, you know, what do I have to compare this to except the exorcist? You know, like, am I being possessed? What is this? I have no belief system for that. Um, and ultimately, um, this thing evolved through the months into doing, like, Tai Chi and all this sort of stuff. So it's like this, maybe Kundalini energy is, that's the word I use in the book. I just pick one. There are several words for it. Um, 
so there became like there's two operating systems in me, like a Mac and a Word. You know, there's Jeremy that you're talking to now and 2.0. And I, I don't go anywhere when 2.0 is on doing its thing. You know, I'm still here. You can still talk to me, but it's just not me doing the movements. It's, so it's you, a just you just witness. You just witness the movement just, happening. Yeah, and the more you talk and the more you become yourself, you get in the way of what's going on, for sure. Um, but you can, you're still there. Um, uh, so, what was the question? <laughs> so, uh, so what was the, the question? The experience at the root of the insights that you share in your book. So yeah, building up to that, actually most of the insights came in the building up to that moment. It was like I, I went through this sort of phase of just these things flooding into me. It was like, well, one thing I was doing was I was sort of doing positive negation on myself, which is uh, you look at something, well, I was doing it with my own psychological baggage. So just for instance, I would look at why do you have shitty relationships with women. Well, am I allowed to swear in your show, by the way? It's all right. It's all right. Okay. <laughs> Why do you have crappy relationships with women? <laughs> well, it's because, you know, so-and-so did this to me in high school. Well, why did you allow her to do that? Well, because, you know, this is how my parents treated me. Well, why did they treat you that way? Well, my mom, her relationship with her parents and my dad, you know, and you just keep breaking something down and breaking it down not saying what the answer is, just constantly questioning and breaking it down, and then you realize at the end of it, there is no answer. You know, at the end of it, um, just the emotional attachment to the, the problem dissolves, because you realize, you know, it just is. It's We're all in this together. This is just what we do. You know, we, we screw up. That's, <laughs> right? Nature. Um, and you can do that with other things, you know, with love or, or whatever. You can deconstruct, well, you can't say what love is, but you can say what it is not. And maybe by the time you get to the end of what love is not, uh, love becomes you. Um, so in a similar way, I get to the end of deconstructing my own psychological baggage and sort of a more whole me becomes me. Um, and so during that process, uh, I think because I was clearing out, you know, I don't want to, it's hard to put this into language because I don't want to say a higher self was giving me epiphanies or whatever. I think that higher self nonsense is just, is part of the the split. Is yeah. We do that. That yeah. is you. It's just you're in denial that it's you, like a schizophrenic or like a multiple personality disorder. Yeah. It's like you're in denial that that's you. But whatever that other thing that I put out there is me, um, gave me this flood of insights. Um, and then after, of course, you know, a lot of, this Kundalini stuff, and then the big awakening event, um, more insights. Um, but really, uh, most of the book, I think, was formed prior to the big I am epiphany experience. I will not ask you to, to describe the, the full-blown Kundalini experience. <laughs> there are two of them. They are in the book. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good reason to, uh, to have a look uh, at the description. You, you, have a, you write a very vivid description of your Kundalini experience. And, Made me jealous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I went to. Well, have that's what I said out to you. So, job well done. <laughs> but um, you touched on a couple of critical things. Um, you said that uh, there is no path to truth. There is no journey. There is nothing to do. There is nothing to be done. If you if you try to do something, then you stay away from truth. Um, and you said that um, going back to psychology, that you can explore and find uh, uh, the root events or the root causes of, of, of 
every neurosis, uh, every psychological problem you might have, and it's still not satisfying. It will still not stop you from suffering. Um, it's a conundrum, because what is there to be done then? Why did you even write a book? <laughs> well, there's nothing to be done, but that you have to get to the point where that's not just something that you say, that's something that you really understand. Um, I mean, again, it, it, it is, it's a conundrum, because you, even those who understand do not seek, then become like I did. You start reading these books that tell you do not seek, and you start understanding that, and you become that person who understands it. You know, I get this. And so you have to even wake up out of that and go, oh, wait, I'm that guy. <laughs> this has become my way of seeking, the denial of seeking, in the way that, you know, an atheist and a theist both have answers. It's just that one of them knows that they have answers. The atheist denies that they have answers, but both are an answer. Um, because there's the unknowable, and you're trying to answer the unknowable. Um, and in, I think that's what we're trying to do here, is when you're trying to answer yourself, um, it's an unknowable in the same, or at least you have to come to that, that place of understanding it as an unknowable to sort of have it become you, have the, the answer or whatever you want to call it become you. Um, I don't know, does that answer it? Yeah, I think, I know you cannot say anything different from there's nothing to be done. Stop. <laughs> there's nothing to be done. Give up. Well, why did there's I, write, why did I write the book? <laughs> Well, you write but, the book because it just as the archetypes, just, you know, as we're talking about archetypes coming at you, as you're talking about a Buddha coming at you or, or whatever, uh, any of these things, or an alien or, or any of these things, um, it's all us talking to ourselves. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to myself as I'm talking to you. Um, and I think it's important. I think the whole thing is important because at that height of oneness, it's one waking oneself up. So eventually you get to that point where you understand that you're waking you up is waking me up, you know. If, if we're the hand, you know, if we're a bunch of fingers, uh, all thinking we're just fingers and we're actually hand, it's important to the hand that all these fingers <laughs> recognize hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I don't want to be a thumb anymore. I don't want to be a sore thumb. <laughs> you want to be the hand. <laughs> I want to be the hand, damn it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so you write the book, and uh, does it need to be a book is a real question. Like... Does it need to be beyond a sentence, a Twitter feed? No, it doesn't. Stop. But, but what else am I going to talk about, really? And, and then how can I sell it to you, is the other thing. And so, you know. Maybe we are asking the wrong question, because we are, we are inserting in this culture in which everything is about what you need to do, right? What do we need to do? What, what, what should I do, right? right. To, 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 to stop suffering, to be happy. What should I do? What is there to be done? Maybe you should ask the question, what should we stop doing? So if I ask that to you, because at least it, it, it gives people something, right? What should we stop doing to, to arrive at the, the insights you had? Well, you should stop doing. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> when you, I mean, period, full stop. When you stop doing, being becomes you, you know? Because, again, language becomes the problem because you want to say, well, you want to stop doing and you want to be. You want, but you don't want to be because that's you doing something to be. You just want to stop. You just want to see the the importance of not doing anything. And I think that the reason that this is so difficult isn't just that how we live is antithetical to that, but that to do that is to acknowledge that you and I, projecting outwardly here, um, are constructs of the brain. And really, we don't want to do that. Even the people who say that we are that don't want to do that. 
because that stop what what happens when that stops that's death essentially what i'm prescribing for humanity is death while you're alive while the body remains alive ego death uh and that and who wants to do that we don't want to do that we don't want to be the unknowable or the unknown we want to bring that to us we want to be alive and bring that into us and you know uh, we will lie to ourselves, even to the point of saying we don't want to do that. Even saying, "Jeremy, I get it. I don't want to do that." Um, then why are you still here? Like because you do, <laughs> and I, you know, and it becomes this. It becomes this weird thing for me because, on the one hand, like you know, I know what the games are. I've played them, but on the other hand, I know that um, you know there are culty guru types who will tell you the exact same thing because they want you to sort of die into them. They want to take on your stuff and, you know, you give them your money or however that works in your sex and, and all that. And um, so eventually you come up against that problem. You know, you've got these, these dueling parallels of truth and false, um, and they're both speaking the same language. Uh, so, I don't know. When you, say, when you say, well, we should just stop doing, um, but you mean a lot more than just stop physical activity or, or, or stop moving. I mean, if you're sitting on a chair uh, not moving, you can still be doing a lot, right? That's right. And uh, one of the things that you say in the book that I, that I thought was very interesting uh, is your prescription, you alluded to it already, of positive negation. It's the attempt to poke holes and undermine every single narrative, every single conclusion, assumption, storyline, explanation you place on reality. Poke holes on, their, on, on them all, so the brain has nothing to grasp to, has nothing to cling on. You, 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 you're basically prescribing total, complete skepticism, right? Yeah, well, what I'm prescribing also is the stopping of time internally. Because again, I think time is one of these things that we internalize because we see it out there. Things grow, they get old, they die, they're born, they grow, they, you know, on and on and on. Um, and internally, we become that. We become that sense of time. So how do you stop time? Of course, you can't stop physical time, but you can stop inward time. And then what happens? You know, what does that mean, really? That means you become the now. You become the moment. Um, and that, that's sounds, uh, that sounds yeah. very Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he said some good things. I just, it's funny because I, I poke fun of him at the very beginning of the book just because I think it's funny that in the very beginning of his book, he says, you know, I had this giant epiphany experience and then that's when I knew I needed to become a teacher. It's like, well, but you, there's nothing to teach. You know, we can talk about this, but, but I can't really teach you anything. Um, but let, there, there's nothing to teach. Let me stay on this point. Because at some point you also say, I could have stayed in that non-local perspective, on that uh, epiphany level, right, of, of no Jeremy. I, I'm not my ego anymore. I have a, a parallel perspective of all points of view. I'm the universe. And you say, you could have stayed there, but, but you chose not to because you wanted to communicate it. To what extent is that different from the opening statement in... Uh, um, because I just wanted to communicate, I, I feel like there's a way to communicate this, and I try to do it, um, that is sort of speaks to our, my generation of, you know, cynical, funny people, and um, but is logical and dry in some sense, 
you know, not full of parable and, and all of this, um, and just communicate it. Is there a way to just communicate it and then step back and go, that's it. <laughs> Take it or leave it. That There's the contribution. I don't know that I'm saying anything different than Krishnamurti did, but I'm saying it in a language that you'll understand because I speak your language. And I don't know that I could speak that language if I became non-local, you know, crazy man on the mountain guy. <laughs> like, what, what becomes you then? Now, I, I, I tend to think that maybe I made a mistake. Uh, well, maybe I didn't even have a choice in the first place. You know, maybe the, the choice was an illusion, but sure felt real. And um, if I did have the choice, I think ultimately what you live as is non-local. And so part of that non-locality is still you. Because that was definitely part of my experience was leaving the body, becoming this thing, visionary thing, but then recognizing myself back in my body even as I'm having this experience. Uh, because you're everywhere at once. You know, you recognize yourself as the totality. And so if part of that totality is still the little nugget me, <laughs> then could I have communicated this from that perspective? Maybe, except that as we're talking about with archetypes and aliens and all this stuff, seems to have a hard time being that pulled out person, that pulled out perspective person, communicating through the funnel uh, everything that you need to say yeah. to this species. Um, so I didn't know that I could do that, and I really wanted to, but um, but I don't want to teach it. I just want to say, not in the sense of, you know, being a teacher, not in the sense of now I'm going to take on disciples, and now I'm going to mm -hmm. speak around the world about all of this stuff, and you're going to ask me questions, and I'm going to stand on a stage, and you know, all of that setup um, it just doesn't it doesn't work anymore. I, I don't know if it ever did, but it certainly doesn't work now. I, for one, think there is a a an enormous need for for modern metaphors. I mean, we are not saying anything new here. Uh, um, this this has been said already thousands of years ago. Uh, but we 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 are in a dire need for modern metaphors, and in terms of how it's expressed, in terms of how the person saying it uh, looks and acts, the whole ethos, the, the, the entire gestalt of the experience of listening to truth needs to be modernized. And, uh, you know, Krishnamurti was one thing. Jeremy in a Hawaiian shirt is, uh, can relate to people that would uh, never listen to Krishnamurti. Um, Jeremy writing a book about his uh, enlightenment experiences uh, in which a lot of the book is, 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 is humorous. Uh, is new, and I, for one, think that is that is that is quite important. What I wonder, though, is if you regret now, can you go back to that non-local perspective at will, or have you lost the way? I mean, there is no path, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I don't mean. Um, well, those are two different questions. One is no, I don't. There, there's two qualities. There's the Kundalini energy I talked about, which I can just right now shut up for a second, and it will start doing its thing. Um, and then there's another quality of this energy, which feels like a slit opening in the spine, and this energy pours in and becomes, you know, it's like you're levitating on this bed of bliss, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that I have not found a way to open or control. Um, and, and I've only felt it three times, and the third time was the big I am experience. So no, I, I haven't been able to get back to that. Um, but I can't, you know, it's the conundrum. You can't search. You can't search for it, you know, because right, you know, the problem with giving it up is that you then become a common schmuck like everyone else again. And so you, can't, there's, 
the second that you try to get back to that, that's when you become a neurotic ball of mess. Uh, but the temptation is always there to do that. So it's really become an addict, is what I've become. Uh, <laughs> do I wish that? <laughs> do I wish that I hadn't done it? Yeah, part of me does. Part of me wishes um, I had um, not. But but the answer came so immediately. It was like it's like you intuit that you've got this this option. And the answer just comes immediately. Like, no, this is what you have to do because essentially, you know, whether you like it or not, kid, um, it is one waking oneself up. And so you don't get to go live airy fairy um, unless we're all in this together. And yet, again, the paradox is not, we're not going to all be in this together. I'm not going to wake anyone up, you know. Um, but I guess I just felt like I had to write the book. I, you know, it's like I'm personally not going to wake anyone up, but who knows if someone reading this book, you know, tomorrow or a thousand years from now, uh, yeah. no one's going to be reading this book a thousand years from now. Let's let's face it. But maybe tomorrow uh, <laughs> reads it and they get it. You know, that's one more. That's one more. Um, you know, person. I guess. There's one thing you yeah, wrote. Yes, I screwed up there. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I really, I really wanted to come back and live a life of poverty. And uh, <laughs> well, you moved to Hawaii but... in the meantime. <laughs> That's true. You got a tan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got some good things out of it. I got to move to Hawaii. I got a tan, and uh, most of ufology hates me. So, <laughs> three good things. Um, there's one thing you wrote in your book, and which I found tantalizing, but I didn't understand. So I ask you what you meant with that. You said, I will read it. Everything is both real and unreal. Necessity is the root of this paradox. Yeah. So you, in, <laughs> what, in, in what way it's real and in what way it's unreal? You mean everything's a metaphor? Uh, it's real as a, as a carrier of meaning, but not literally real. I think there are, yeah, there can be a few different meanings to that. I mean, one is, just as we were talking about before, you know, everything is real to us, but from the pulled out perspective of spirit, you know, maybe we're the dream. Um, but it's also true, you know, consensus reality is how we live our lives. We do have to get up and pay taxes and all of that, uh, which I'll eventually do, IRS. Uh, but at the same time, that's all complete nonsense. You know, we, we do live um, in, in the absurdity of certainty. I think um, so. I think it's true on both of those levels. Um, I think everything is a metaphor within a metaphor. I think that when you look at uh, you know systems in physics, when you look at as above, so below, when you see things reflected here on Earth that happen in space, <laughs> or you see systems um, that happen at the microscopic level that mirror us, uh, or in nature that that we mirror, um, you start to see that. Yeah, everything is a certain set of systems within systems within systems, and I think that's yeah. the same way saying metaphor. And we keep on trying to look for, for the core of it, right? Uh, it's a metaphor of a metaphor, but eventually it's a metaphor for something literal, but the literal is never there. It's an onion. There, there is, there it is, is no an core. onion, and I, you know, and I think in physics, you know, I, I boldly stated that I know this in the book, uh, I think you're eventually they're going to get to the point where they understand, you know, that the reason that particles seem to behave according to the observer is because you can't see nothing. You have to see something. And so eventually you're going to get down to that, 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 inf you know, that layer where you are confronted by your expectation to see something else. 
uh, and that's why it's reacting to you. It's not really reacting to you. It is being projected by you. Because it is uh, you. Because it is you. Because you can't see nothing. You know. And again, that's a metaphor for <laughs> yeah, all yeah. the stuff we've been talking about. So, yeah. You, a couple of minutes ago, you said that um, we are looking for certainty. And um, in the discussion we had um, before we started, you were saying that um, we are not looking for truth. Human beings, the culture, society is not interested in truth. We just tell ourselves that we are. We are interested in certainty, the, the, the certainty to give us some kind of comfort, to alleviate somehow uh, uh, the suffering we go through because we are not sure of anything. Um, and you, you mentioned that uh, we do that because we confuse the real with the repeatable. We keep looking for the repeatable as if it was, as if it were the real, because the repeat, repeatable gives us certainty. It's predictable. It's repeatable. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a mistake. Reality is not the same as what is repeatable. Uh, do you want to comment on that? I thought that was yeah. a rich statement. I mean, it's interesting that we, I, I think, as, scien as scientific reductionist society, or, you know, maybe we're coming out of that, who knows, but uh, that's primarily what the Western world is at this point. What does that mean? That means that we um, tend to say that reality is what is repeatable um, in an experiment or out there before your very eyes, but we also, uh, we, d we don't seem to do anything with the paradox of relativity, you know. Those things are only repeatable until your next discovery that renders it all moot. <laughs> uh, so what does that say? You know, um, I, it's both real and unreal. It is reality until uh, it becomes usurped by the, you know the next phase of knowledge. Um, is it and stopped? I just want to say here is just sort of an interesting side tangent to that, which is that if you if you exclude the things that aren't repeatable. Uh, in, in your data set, if you have outlier data, um, that may be more important on the face of it, but it also might start forming a pattern of its own. You know? Mm. I, I'm sure people think of this, but maybe they don't. I don't know. That just that isn't it interesting that even the outlier data that isn't repeatability probably has repeatable thing elements to it. You know? Or at that, least forms a pattern that it's in some way predictable. Yeah, but then who wants to look at that? Because then that throws everything you thought into question. I don't know. I just know that, you know, gravity doesn't make sense. And yet, <laughs> we don't, you know, eventually we, science just stops asking, like, appropriate questions, I think. Like, I just saw Stephen Hawking, um, what, you know, talking about, we've got this all wrapped up, this reality. Oh, as don't. He can't, as he can't even figure out how to, you know, oh, don't get not me use a Texas instrument to speak. I don't understand. <laughs> but he, uh... You come to a point, they come to a point where they say, you know, action just is. Where in life is action just is? You know, how is gravity just is? How is the exploding thingness, yeah. how, uh, universe just is? How, how is, where do you ever see that anywhere? You gotta make that up. <laughs> in, in science, you can... And they're making it up to combat people who make up other shit. <laughs> this is what gets me. <laughs> You can't, in, in science, science is set up to explain one thing in terms of another. You're always locked in that, in, in that loop. So you never explain the fundamental. You're, you're fundamentally isolated from the fundamentals. 
the fundamentals cannot be explained because you need to explain one thing in terms of another and if you explain one thing in terms of another then it's not fundamental then that other thing is fundamental so it comes down to having to choose what uh, philosophers of science would call uh, the ontological primitives the things that just are this is built into the scientific method you cannot escape from that uh, and the game you see now being played is that um, we keep on postponing the moment where we have to bite that bullet. We keep on imagining things that are more fundamental. We are now in the game of strings and membranes that are orders and orders of magnitude smaller than anything we can detect in the foreseeable future, in the imaginable future. And we say, ah, we cannot access those, but those are the ontological primitives. It's almost like we are we are putting it always ahead of us. It's always somewhere inaccessible in the future. And it's always a promising approach, in the, a promissory approach, in the sense that uh, we can't figure it out now, but at some point in the future, we'll figure it out. But that future keeps on retreating. You know, I don't know what's had this wonderful metaphor that because we are the universe, we can't look at the back of our necks. So if, you, if we turn to try to look, guess what? The back of your neck moves away. So the bigger the telescopes, he said, and the, and the better the microscopes, the bigger and the smaller the universe will become because the neck turns away. You can't see it. You know, it's your mm. own neck. I thought that was a wonderful metaphor. Um, yeah. But this is built into our way of our scientific way of thinking today. My own view is that uh, the fundamentals, the ontological primitives, can only be made sense of by direct experience. Because it's so the only thing. Do you uh, have you directly experienced? I have had uh, not as well compared to you. I haven't had my share yet <laughs> of direct experience. Uh, but science itself is a product of the human psyche. It's just that we got it all inverted, right? We, we are now saying that the human psyche is a product of the abstractions of science, like matter and energy outside of mind, outside of experience, which is an abstraction. It's unprovable. It's more metaphysical than any spiritual realm you can conceive of because it's fundamentally not accessible. Uh, so we got it in, inverted, we got it the other way around. But if we fix that, then the psyche and, 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 and direct experience is, is the fountainhead of everything. It's the fountainhead of science. And that's the only place where we will find the fundamentals, I think. I think you had a big glimpse of, at, at the fundamentals. And then, of course, we screwed all up with language, as you said yourself, is inevitable. Yeah. Well, uh, this is also goes into you know why did you write this book? Um, I, I don't. Uh, granted, I haven't read everything, but I don't see where there's just anyone going. Okay, cut and dry. This is what it is. Here it all is. Here's all of your epiphanies. You, you know, stupid materialist society. Uh, you reductionist bastards. Here's your language reflected back at you. Here it all is. Now, does that shut your brain up? Does your brain, which is constantly looking for an instruction manual, go, okay, I get it. Um, probably not. Probably most people not. But I put it in there as an experiment anyway to try to shut the brain up. Um, but I just think, um, I, I don't know. You're saying that we need more more metaphorical language. More modern metaphors. Modern metaphors. Um, so do you think that we have become too to buy the book, to cut and dry, we need an explanation, we need to be held by the hand, um, and have lost some rich inner sense? Well, that, 
I was actually planning to, 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 to ask you something along those lines. I think that uh, I am with you that uh, the moment you bring truth to time and you put language around it, you kill it. I am with you on that. Um, so it cannot be spoken. It's a, it's a direct experience and we do not have a common dictionary to talk about it with any degree of accuracy whatsoever. And the only thing but you still need to communicate that point, right? I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. At the end of the day, we are a culture, we are a society, and societies and cultures, they live through communication, right? Through language. So the choice we have is, although acknowledging that if you put truth into language, you kill it, the fact is that the culture will always have a narrative. It will always have a story, a worldview, a way to relate to reality and to oneself. Today, it's the scientific worldview running parallel with religion and whatnot, a new age, whatever else is running in parallel. Um, but we can't avoid that because we are social creatures. We communicate. We need the collective reassurance to tell us that uh, what we believe in makes sense. And, and it's enormous, uh, the, the role of this collective reassurance. It, it gets you to believe in literal religion, which, think about that. You know, if you grow up being told that those uh, stories, those metaphorical stories are literally true, you end up believing it, despite all evidence to the contrary. And to be very honest with you, materialism is an incredible fairy tale. The idea that reality actually is outside of subjective experience. There's nothing more metaphysical than that. It's like taking all the spiritual realms and saying it's more metaphysical than that and by the way you will never access it, not even when you die. I mean, it. I find it incredible, but the, the narrative of the culture makes it so easy to believe in that, despite the absurdity of it. So my thinking was that Although I acknowledge that you can never dress truth with words in a way that does, that does, does justice to it, we might try our best to come up with a less bad cultural narrative, a, a less bad worldview, you know, something closer. It would, we would never sink our teeth into the truth through words, but at least we reduce some of the, of the psychological, environmental, whatever or that level of damage we are doing today because of this ridiculous narrative of materialism. So, yeah, what, what do you think about that? Is it worth to give it a try with words and, you know, kill truth for the noble purpose of bringing the culture a little bit closer a little, to truth and a little bit further away from absurdity? Yeah, well, I mean, the killing, the killing of truth is really just what we do. And, you know, it's killing the now to commit it to time. That's really all that means. Um, so you have to be in the, you have to be it to understand it uh otherwise you know the menu is not the food as they say so yeah. but you still need to read the menu if you want to order <laughs> uh so yeah no i do i do think it it's it's worth doing um obviously but i uh, because we have to put it into words because how else again it's like why did you come back well because we need i need to communicate this um or i feel i do we do need to communicate this, and you can only communicate on someone's level, and our level is words, and logic at this point uh, is a big one. So we need to use those tools to communicate, to get out of that, to, you know. Um, but I think that it might be a mistake to say that, that that's all there's ever going to be, you know, that 
you know, you're saying, isn't it better to, to, to form basically a better society based on better standards, even if we never get to the ultimate state outside of that? Uh, the answer yeah. is sure. Well, yeah, it's better to uh, not live in a hell. <laughs> it, it's better to not kick your neighbor and, and hurt yourself. Uh, sure. But is that a, a legitimate question? Um, because I think if you, then you're consigning yourself to staying there. And if you stay there, you're always going to be on the pendulum, swinging back and forth between you know, good and evil choices or good and bad choices. There's always going to be a George Bush followed by an Obama followed by a George Bush. Uh, and neither of them are going to get anything done. So why don't we just like buck the system, you know, instead of like picking a side or saying, okay, this is evolution, this is devolution. Um, maybe it's time to give up the system entirely and see what's there um, and not replace it with another system. Um, how do we get to that point? You know, sure, I have to use you words mean, to communicate that, but... When you say system, you don't mean the political system, you mean our internal operating system, our worldview. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a metaphor, but <laughs> yeah, because I think, again, this is difficult because most people are not going to hear this. Most people are not going to hear it even if they listen to it. Um, but it, that doesn't matter, you know. You can't concentrate on any of that. It's got to be, you know, what sounds correct to you, what sounds right to you. Um, figure that part out and see what changes in the world because of that. I sympathize with that. I, 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 yeah, I, I, I see the, the dilemma there. If you, if you give a better story, even if it is better, it's still a story that will turn into an entrapment and will prevent you from dropping all the stories and seeing for yourself what really is, which is right under our noses. And we knew when we were babies and, and that was taken from us afterwards because of all the stories. On the other hand, you know, realistically, people need the story. People need a story. They, they will not accept a vacuum of stories. They, they will suck something else that is more reasonable, makes more sense to them. So, yeah. I, mean, yeah, I, guess, I guess I just, I'm not concerned with, with, with that. I, I'm concerned with how do we get out of that mode? You know, that, I guess that's how I think is like, you're right. You are, that is right. Now, how do we not be that species anymore? <laughs> because I, I, I've tasted the beyond. I know it's there. So how do we get there? And we can't get there by forming another system. I mean, you know, we, we've tried that. Communism tried that even, you know, relatively recently. And um, it just doesn't work. You know, you can have all the ideals in the world, but if you've got these, you know, these incomplete partial ego selves running the ideals... I mean, what is an ideal? The ideal is the thing that you set up outside of yourself to never achieve it, right? To never yeah. become that. You go, I can't be that, so I'm going to look up to it. Um, so how do we get? How do we incorporate that? How do we become that? Uh, but wouldn't, now you, yeah. wouldn't this imply in the end of culture? Because culture is a set of narratives. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> Can we operate as a society without the narratives that give us context? Let's get there and find out. I mean, let, you know, who knows? The, again, these are the these are the scary questions that you you've got to take the plunge and and find out. Um, yeah, what happens when you die? Well, let's find out. <laughs> Do you resurrect as a new society of the same old, same old? I tend to doubt it. Um, or not? Or you just ignore everything I'm saying and we carry on in slow evolution until what? Uh, does the pressure cooker boil over and we all die? Do we go off to another planet? Uh, and terraform that, and then pollute that, and die. Like, what happens 
what what good consequence comes of remaining as we are or incrementally trying to evolve our sense of awareness? Um, I, it seems like it's been tried and, and failed uh, through the ages. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> I, I, I sympathize with that. It, I don't know how it, how it can be done. Because it, it literally means the end of culture. Culture yeah. has enormous momentum going for it. And, and it abhors a vacuum of narratives. If, if you unproven, I mean, even it has been shown in philosophy of science by Thomas Kuhn that uh, no paradigm, no set of narratives, beliefs and values uh, is falsified before there is another one to replace it. It never happens that we neutrally sit and say, this paradigm makes no sense, let's discard it, let's stay in the limbo for a while until we find another one. It never happens that way. What happens is that there is another paradigm waiting, and then when there is enough momentum going for it and enough holes shot in the reigning paradigm, then there is a swap. But there is never a vacuum of narratives. So I agree with you fundamentally that that, that's the only thing that makes sense, is, is to drop the narrative and experience it directly by stopping the brain, as you say in your book, by stopping brain activity, then truth floods in. Um, I have my own theories uh, and elaborated, elaborate stories about that, uh, which, which concur with what you said. But in practice, at the planetary level, at the level of a civilization, I mean, maybe the only experiment that has a precedence that is relevant here is the, is the Zen Buddhist exp experiment uh, in which they drop all the narratives and, and the whole the whole idea is is to point not tell you what it is no narratives you just point at it and you figure out and you help other people figure out by themselves but a Zen type experiment at the civilization level pooh I don't well, know but isn't the problem with that also that that is the idealized version of the Zen thing, because what really happens with that? You set up a hierarchy. You have a master. You have a pupil. You've got this learning curve. You know, yeah. like it, it doesn't matter how great you know Buddhism on the face of it is great. Some of the things Jesus said on the face of it is great. All of these things are great. Hindus are great. Like every everyone's got something that's great, and they're all speaking the same kernel of truth, which is just be. I mean, the Beatles said it, right? So <laughs> how can it be wrong? Um, but uh, but we don't, we so fundamentally don't want that. We so fundamentally want to be doing something because we don't understand what the ramifications of just being are um, that we turn it into systems and we turn it into the guy above, the guy below. Um, and that's always going to continue to happen. But I, I guess maybe I look at it like, like the way we're talking about it right now and thinking about it is as if to become this next thing is, um, oh, what happens to culture? Oh, that's horrible. Well, but maybe it's the equivalent of the animal becoming us. Do you look back at the animal and go, gee, I really wish I were rooting around in the dirt right now. Uh, but if you were the pig in the dirt, you'd be going, wow, this is great. I don't know if I want to give up this slop. That's an, you know? interesting, <laughs> an, inter an interesting comparison, yeah. Well, the, I think the idea of all these systems, uh, maybe the valid ones, or the ones that have some essence of the truth in them, the narratives that have an essence of the truth in them, is that yes, it's a trap, ultimately, but you hope that the trap will implode, will self-destruct at some point. And if it doesn't, then you're entrapped. 
then, then, then you are there, then you are a Zen Buddhist for, until the end. And then that's of course not the truth, but, but, but you hope that the very system, the very narrative will explode at some point. It will self-destruct and, and it carries you until a certain point, self-destructs and then, and, and then the magic happens. But yeah, usually it doesn't self-destruct, right? But at least it, because you know, uh, while agreeing with you all along, you, you gotta, you gotta admit that it's for anybody listening to this who have who who have not who has not have had the experience you've had to to hear that there is nothing at all to be done is profoundly dissatisfying. Ah. Uh -huh. <laughs> so yeah, and, it's and that's, that, that's where these self-imploding, self-destructing traps come in because it gives people something. And yet, it's all around us. This, this is the thing I don't understand: is it's it's all around us. Um, I mean, I bring up the Wizard of Oz in the book because I, you know, click oh, your heels, you're already right. home. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, everyone's seen the Wizard of Oz, right? You click your heels in your home. This whole charade of going through the Yellow Brick Road and all that—you didn't really need to do that. You learned some things, you met some cool people, but all you really needed to do is click your heels and realize you're there. Um, that's what we're saying. I mean, you didn't really need to take the path. You just needed to click the heels. Um, I, I just, I don't know. Or it, it's just weird to me. Um, like I even think about myself as sort of, you know, here's this schlub, uh, born in the American way, um, makes jokes and all of that stuff. How is it possible that I've had this experience? You know, like it doesn't take a lifetime of serious astuteness and, and all of that. Um, but then why should we think that it does? Because most of these guys have said humor is really important. Uh, if you look at the trickster character that you've seen in every movie, the Mr. Miyagi type, who's like, I'm just some ignorant, you know, whatever, Asian. Um, and then you start talking to him about stuff and suddenly you realize, oh, he's the master. You know, that sort of thing. I mean, that is embedded in us. And yet when confronted with it, we go, I've never heard of that. You know, don't you yeah. find that fascinating? I mean, you, like you said, this all of this stuff that we've been talking about is, you know, it's it's timeless, but we say it's ancient. It's actually yeah. what we are, but we say it's ancient because it's been said since the beginning. And yet, every time you hear it, you go, well, the truth of the past land. Well, that's revolutionary. Just be? <laughs> I've never heard of this just be. Sure you have. Every day of your damn life. What are you talking about? But that's that's the thing. You, you asked this to me. You asked this uh, before, uh, and, I, and I didn't give you an answer. I, I went on a tangent. But that is the value of new modern metaphors, because we are so used. I mean, you write this in the book. Uh, in order never to get there, what we do is to say truth is ancient. Once, once, a word, once a narrative becomes old enough, it becomes remote enough, then it acquires the glow of some kind of superior truth because it's it's removed enough from our present that it becomes respectable uh, and that's where I think things go go terribly wrong because we, that's a great by way doing to put it, yeah but, but well you wrote that yourself I'm paraphrasing you <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, by doing that we are making sure we never get there. So if we if we stay with the traditional metaphors, you know the, the old Zen masters uh, with the koans and or you know the the, the the enlightened figures of two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha and his poses, whatever, uh, then it doesn't have the living present uh, feeling that it should have for people to see that 
It's here. It's right under your nose. It's staring you in the face everywhere you look. It's right there. It's just that you're covering it with a conceptual web, with a narrative that's not allowing you to see it. But it's right there. Nobody's hiding it, as you say in your book. We are the executioners. We are the ones hiding it from ourselves. There is no conspiracy. Uh, and that's where I think modern metaphors uh, play a role. And I say metaphors in the widest sense possible. You, by being who you are, is already a modern metaphor. You don't look anything like Mr. Miyagi. You don't look anything like uh, a Zen Roshi. Um, I kind of look like Buddha if I stood up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and your book doesn't sound anything like what, well, it doesn't have the feeling of a Krishnamurti book although the message is essentially the same. So I think that's the role of modern metaphors, to make it present, to make it alive in the here and now, not some calcified thing from the remote past that is completely inaccessible. Yeah, well, you know, as you're, as you're saying all that, it, it reminds me of just the fact of this Kundalini awakening, you know, this moving around and doing, you know, literally my hands will do acupressure things all along um, and then some of the epiphanies from there um, become like when you see tribal paint or you see you know any of these things that that people put on themselves what they actually mean you know that you just see and you go well that's weird but no they're actually there's a grid here <laughs> uh, and you know it um, and if you just I mean just as an exercise people listening uh, ask yourself how acupuncture is possible, how yogic postures are possible. Where did these things come from? How did anyone understand to stick a needle somewhere or to do a pose for some healthful benefit? How did that ever occur? Because no one ever says who invented these things. Or how. Well, there's, yeah, or how. And the reason is because they are, they come, the biggest secret of all is it's you doing it. Uh, when, when you shut up and let this thing take over or, you know, sort of your body has its own natural language that it flowers and expresses when you step out of the way that is to me that is an unfortunately revolutionary idea because you're certainly killing a lot of business there uh but but that is the truth i mean that is a fact you can do this um so there's one benefit i guess um that is practical but it i don't know isn't it interesting that that's true and no one says that you know we've got this fact about us that is just a and no one says it. They keep this mystical, like you said, this ancient thing, this yeah. ancient set of systems. It's not ancient set of systems. It comes alive and you, you do that. And then if you write it down and sell it to somebody, you can go, look, this, these are these yogic postures here. It's so alive that you dismiss it because it doesn't have that superior, ancient glow, that whole ethos of something, you know. But isn't it more mystical because it's you doing it and you're not doing it. It's not you moving your hands around and yet you're feeling all the benefits and there's this other energy or it feels like an other energy um, doing it. Yeah, but it's not, it's you. You step out <laughs> of the way. I think a lot of people would have the first impulse and would go like, what well, silly thing, and not step out, of the, step out of the way. And then they wouldn't even register that as a memory. It would be an, a non-event. They wouldn't mm -hmm. even remember it. Well, it was mm -hmm. there, it almost happened, but yeah, they didn't step out of the way. Uh, yeah, people are different. Well, let me ask you: Do you do you see an urgency to any of this, or do you think um, not? Because I just I guess I feel like the urgency, if there is one to it, now as opposed to any other time in history, 
Because we could, you know, we could just flub around for the next millennia, except I feel like we are too many people too technologically out of control and too uh, arrogant. Um, you know, I don't know how it is in your country, but here, you know, there certainly are people who care about global warming and pollution and all this, but there's at least just as many people uh, who believe, well, great. <laughs> like, who cares? Uh you know, and I think it comes from the Christian notion that we have dominion over animals and earth. And, you know, maybe if we get this, this suicide party started early, Jesus will come back. You know, this sort of notion. Um, do you get that where you are? And, and do you think that this is a real... Do you think we've given up? Do you think that we've given up at a point where we are about to explode or implode? Yeah, you, you talk about transcendence versus uh, suicide, right? <laughs> are we going to commit suicide or are we going to transcend? I don't know. I, I think that, you know, from the perspective of the one mind that is playing all of these roles, including you and me, I don't think it matters that much because it's a game anyway, right? Ultimately, when we wake up, it's like, oh, cool. It's like we say of our dreams. We wake up, oh, I had a weird dream. So it may not matter all that much, ultimately. I don't know, I, I, I suppose. But, uh, and I do see um, catastrophes uh, looming on the horizon, already very close to us, an environmental catastrophe, um, maybe others. But the thing that uh, grips me most, that I think is most relevant, urgent and fundamental, is the psychological disaster that we are facing as a culture. I don't think there has ever been so much lack of meaning uh, in people's lives. Now, let's pause right there, because where do you live? In the Netherlands. That's in right, Europe. and you just said there is a psychological disaster looming with this culture. You could have been from America and saying that. You could be from Australia and saying that. You know? like if I, I talk to people around the world, and everyone says the same thing. And you're talking about culture as if we're talking about one culture. We're not. We're talking about globally, yeah. as far as I can tell, everyone's feeling this in all of their separate cultures. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, well, so what's going on here? There, there's a core cultural element that has spread around the world like a virus. I mean, China 100 years ago was a very, very different place culturally than China today. If you go to Shanghai or, or, or to, to, to Beijing, places I, because of work I, I, I visit more or less often, uh, you see a core element, a core cultural element that is identical to the US. Money rules. It's all about money, it's all about status, about becoming famous. I heard from a Chinese once, a Chinese lady, what's the meaning of life? Well, to become rich and famous. And I looked at her and I asked, do you really mean this? And she said, I was surprised with the question, like, of course, what else? And that's a Chinese. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there is a, a, a diseased core cultural element that we in the West have very successfully exported. And it's now all over, all over the place. Hmm. And so, do you think that it can hold? I guess is the question. I, I, I mean, one, one, you know, personally, not, I know in the grander scale, does it matter if it holds well? It matters personally. It matters to us in the here and now, whether uh, we end up in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> globe. Um, that transition won't be fun. So, do you? But do you think that that is uh, more or less realistic than we're just going to keep chugging along? Have you ever considered the possibility that? This is exactly what needs to happen. There needs to be a cycle. I, I just had this 
this mm -hmm. this insight and here right here talking to you that we need to get to a point that is completely unsustainable we need to face a dilemma where there is nothing you can do but you also cannot do anything or like, did i say this right you have to do <laughs> something but there is nothing you can do right and 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 the psychic pressure becomes so extreme in the form of meaning, meaninglessness, in the form of any conceivable course of action or inaction, that the brain stops and everybody gets to where some of us, including you, have been. Maybe that's mm -hmm. the game. Maybe that's what has to happen. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, that could be. Um, I mean, yeah, I've thought about that. And that, But that, it, it's just an awful thing to think about because then it's like, well... That means that whoever survives that maybe goes on and, and builds a proper society or, or however that works. Um, and in my fantasy head where I welcome the zombie apocalypse, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> like, like I think everyone dying around me, <laughs> that's great. Uh, be, but really, what does that represent? You know, I don't know where, about where you are, but here we have this fascination with the living dead nowadays, you know, these movies and TV shows. And what does that really represent? I mean, to me, it represents... That wanting to start over, that wanting to be alone because everyone else is an asshole and you just want to start over, you know. But why are we waiting for that, you know? Like you're saying, and I think it's true, maybe that will be the end result. But in reality, and that's in fantasy, you like that. In reality, it's blood and death and dismemberment and pain and confusion and all of that. Um, why do we need that? Why do we want that when you don't need to get to that point? How do, how do we realize that? What do you see coming up? Are, are you hopeful? What do you think will happen? I mean, we, we had a discussion about what should happen and what can one do about it or not do about it. But what do you see happening if you, you know, in, in the sanctity of your own minds, in silence, uh, when you're brutally honest to yourself, how do you see things evolving? Will we be saved by the aliens? <laughs> <laughs> There will be no saving by aliens. Um, no, I, what do I see? I mean, I see, I see us going the way of the dodo bird. Really, um, I think near extinction. I don't, I don't know about total, but I, I think near extinction, and maybe those who survive uh, get it, <laughs> like you said. Uh, maybe it's the big knock on the head that you need. I don't know, but I, I mean, when I just think about it, um, I don't, I don't see any. Okay, there are two levels. One is I don't see anything good coming because either that will happen or we will wake up to something slightly better, but it's going to be more of the same. You know, it's just going to be an, like, what is this slow progression? This is what we've been dealing with from the beginning, this slow progression because we think that everything's about learning. You know, we're here to learn and all that. And maybe you're here to learn that you're not here to learn. <laughs> like, let's get to that lesson. I mean, um... You're here just so, to snap out of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, do we? Do we, I don't think that we can carry on. I just don't think we're gonna. I don't. I think we're going to force ourselves into a suicide situation, you know. And, and if it's either through apathy of the environment or the fact that we're out of prophecies, there ain't no one coming to save us. And the best that we can do now is get to a place where billionaires are raping us slightly less. I don't, you know, like, there's no vision of the world that I have that's going to be uh, pleasant. Uh, so, <sighs> I'm not hopeful on that human level going through it. On the other level of stepping out of that, um, that is what we do. <laughs> 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 
that is an it's all it's all okay because that is the necessary illusion that is the real and the unreal i mean it, it sucks to go through it and it's going to be terrible but you know that is what we do that is what it means to make the free will choice away from what we've been talking about here uh and that's just a natural consequence and, and you have compassion for it all the way through so which which viewpoint will will i be on that magical day i don't know on that cheerful note <laughs> <laughs> but i carry them both. <laughs> what is ahead for you personally on short term a new book some new show, some new podcast. Paratopia eh, um, 2.0. Nah, I've, I've got, you know, I feel like I'm done with podcasting for the most part. I'll do a show here and there. I feel like I've exhausted my want for that medium. Um, I have a new book, I'll probably release in June or July, that is um, fiction. It's my first novel. Um, and the story of how that came to be is almost as interesting as the novel itself, but... Yeah, it's called Into the End, and uh, I think you will find it fascinating. There's a lot of these concepts that we're talking about in it, um, and a lot of uh, truth disguises fiction in it, I think. Um, so you're going Graham Hancock, switching to fiction, to tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> cool. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, jvay.com? Yeah, jayvay.com. Uh, come say hi. And putting the links to your book and to your web to your website in the description of the YouTube video and in the notes of the podcast on iTunes and on InceptionDialogues.com. Can I throw in one more thing before you sure. sign me off? Go ahead. <laughs> I just want to say that, that the one thing that is missing from this dialogue, as with most dialogues like this, is love, if I may be so bold as to throw that out there, <laughs> and which is missing from most of my shtick, you know, most of my delivery of this stuff. Um, I think I just overlook it, but, but I think like ultimately like in the, I think that is the part that is hard to describe. And that's where the menu is not the food is that we're talking about this as though, you know, it's something that you can choose and it's hypothetical and maybe yeah. something to be feared about that unknowable, but that unknowable is love. You are that when you're not running from yourself. Um, and so I, I think, I think it's just important to remember that, that there, you know, we're not talking nihilism here. There, there is something beyond that death. <laughs> yeah. We're not talking nihilism, and we're not talking um, Christian heaven, Muslim heaven. We're, we're talking about a state of being that is you when you're not pretending to be this. So let's get there. Thanks again to Jeremy for having joined me. Um, I very much appreciated his honesty, his, his humor, um, two things that, are, given the topics we talked about, are, are rare and then are difficult to find, especially together in a single person. Um, I look forward to talking to him again. I don't think we covered everything we wanted to cover last night. We were just beaten by exhaustion, at least I was. It was very late uh, at night uh, for me. Um, so let's see uh, how you guys will react to this episode and uh, maybe I'll invite uh, Jeremy over again to continue the conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and I will see you next time.